All right. Good morning, Doug. Uh, lots of interesting things to talk about today, but uh, you had a, a, an experience yesterday going into the uh, the, the embassy and uh, here in Uruguay to take care of some banking business. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? <clears throat> well, I drove into Montevideo, which as a city, I don't think has much to recommend it. But oddly enough, uh, as I was driving in, I noticed something that had always been there, but had never really impressed me before. And uh, the city may be unique in the world. I can't think of another offhand in that uh, it has a, with the city, faces on the Rio del the Plata, the Plate River, which is the one of the widest rivers in the world. It's like a hundred miles wide and heading towards Argentina. Anyway, you drive along the river and it's about a 15 mile road with the city right there in back of your, on your right hand as I was driving in and the river on your left. That's somewhat unusual to have such a long drivable river frontage with a beach running along the whole way. Kind of unusual, anyway, it struck me. Other than that, Montevideo is not very impressive and I, I promise you the US Embassy is not impressive at all. It's, um, I think it's early blockhouse style. All the new US Embassies everywhere in the world look like they're federal prisons with uh, you know, slit type windows and the things built, built like a bunker and are rumored to have uh, two or three or four sub stories underground for what reason I don't, this is just what you hear, you'll never find no. out. But uh, this Montevideo embassy, which is um, pretty close to the water, uh, is kind of like a uh, transition style in between whatever the old embassies might have been and the new embassies. And of course, <clears throat> lots of guards outside. And it uh, doesn't matter that you're a US citizen, you have to you know, hang around before they let you in. Just hang around, you know, and have to go up to the uh, Uruguayan security people. Oddly enough, I didn't see any Marines, which, uh, are often in evidence in embassies, but this is a peaceful country. But Uruguayan security guys you know, walked up and said, I have a three o'clock appointment. Don't worry, don't worry. So go back and hang out, ask him again. Finally, he lets me in. So it's poorly organized. But once I got in, um, of course, you have to put your mask on. And they uh, insisted on rubbing your hands and alcohol. That was important. And then it was just like TSA, where everything's scanned and you have to take your belt off and all this type of nonsense. But um, then, I, then I went back into the uh, bowels of the embassy itself to get the uh, get some mortgage papers uh, notarized. But the entire episode was so different and so much more bureaucratic. It was so much less pleasant than visiting, believe it or not, the Syrian embassy uh, in, um, <laughs> I don't think I was in Beirut. I think I was in Dubai. So I visited the Syrian embassy. Now here we are in an active war zone country, okay? That everybody hates. They've got an ordinary house. You're re I was received and offered uh, an 
a nice cup of tea or, or was it espresso coffee? Everybody was very friendly, quick. I mean, it, 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 was, a, it was a pleasure that gave you a good impression of Syrians. Hmm. Government employees at an embassy of all things. Uh, totally unlike visiting this embassy here, which I understand much of the time, not when I was there for some reason, but has a line a hundred people long outside the embassy with Uruguayans trying to get in to deal with their visas to come to the US. Mm. I would think it's impossible to come to the US if you have to stand in a line of a hundred or 200 people. This is what I've heard. Yesterday, it wasn't, wasn't bad. It was still annoying, but not, not bad. Anyway, dealing with the US, dealing with the Syrian government, much easier than dealing with the US government. For what it's worth, just to, so it doesn't it doesn't sound like it's now. it doesn't sound like it's a one of those like you see in those scenes in movies where you know you have an American that is on the run that's being chased by some you know by some foreign power and then they they miraculously cross into the embassy lines and the Marines you know let them in and then then post a guard to protect the Americans it wasn't like that is what you're saying oh. <laughs> forget about that if I've been chased by by banditos, which don't exist in Uruguay. Uh, I, I suppose I'd have to wait in line with everybody else. No, <laughs> nothing like that. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. It's not surprising. I'll have, to get in, I'll have to get into some type of a dramatic dust up, perhaps in, in Beijing, and see if it works like in the movie. But uh, I'm, I'm sure that scene you're referring to, who was running? that the embassy took him in. Was a there are so many different movies that have that motif in it, you know, from the, you know, from the eighties and nineties, uh, lots of different action movies, but I, and, and thriller movies, but I can't, I can't think of one uh, that comes to mind right now, but I know I've seen it several times in movies. Yes. It's like the U S U S embassy is, it's your home away from home where you'll be welcomed and they'll, they'll give you a warm blanket and everything you need. No, nothing, nothing like that. Uh, Oh, I, I suspect that the State Department or some other government agency is paying the movie producer to make it look better than it really is. Just like most of the war movies are sponsored directly or indirectly by the big corporations, so they get a good plug about their equipment. Not same Raytheon weapon systems or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean... I'll never forget the most egregious thing. I may have mentioned this before. It was a movie with Charlton Heston and it was a Navy movie. And um, he says, thank, thank God and general dynamics. When they <laughs> right. <laughs> actually said that in the movie. So, <laughs> anyway. All right, well, uh, well at least they're open. That's what I did yesterday. Well, at least they're open because, you know, they've had these really strict uh, COVID, uh, you know, shutdowns at a lot of the embassies. And I know, like, I, I know some people that are in the U.S., for instance, that are have even just been trying to get passports for their children. And, um, you know, it's been what would normally be a, like three to four weeks has been six months. So, you know, it's just it's all been you're lucky it was open, I guess. Yeah, but once I got into the bowels of the embassy, there were the... Um, the area where I was, the consular area of the embassy, uh, it was like a um, it was like a bank, but it was like 
serious bulletproof glass at, at each of the six kiosks separating the petitioners from the government yeah. official that was going to approve whatever they were doing. So we all had to wear masks, uh, of course. Uh, of course. Safety first. Down under my nose, and oddly nobody noticed or objected or whatever. Whatever, really, probably negligence more than anything else. They didn't object to that, but uh, it was really the security is extremely high. I felt I felt so much more comfortable at the Syrian embassy years ago. <laughs> <I love that. laughs> it's so great. Well, maybe maybe they're uh, you know maybe the, these officials are anticipating the future hatred that's coming their way and sort of building defensible positions in advance of that. Yeah. Well, I can't believe anything violent happening here in no, peaceful, backward little Uruguay, but anything can happen anywhere, of course. Yeah, well, after 9-11, after, after though, they just did this global upgrade to all um, uh, diplomatic facilities around the world, all State Department facilities where they were you know, shoring them up from car bombs and all these other potential threats. And I think they did it sort of blank, you know, uh, blanket for all of the embassies, regardless of where they were located. So yeah, I'm going to deal with that subject among many others in the next novel of the series, which will be called Terrorist, talking about, you know, how people that really want to disrupt the system could actually do so regardless of all of the, you know, the, the hardened facilities and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just kabuki theater. All, all the hardened facilities really are, quite frankly. It really is. So uh, the other thing that came across the news item, big news item of the day is the inflation rate once again ticked up. This time at seven and a half percent is the official inflation rate, which the, the headlines all say this is the highest it's been since in 40 years since 1982, basically. Now, right about that. that number, go ahead. Yeah, well, go ahead, because you made an observation before we actually went on the air, which impressed me is totally correct. Well, the, the fact is, and you, I think you, you originally turned me on to this. Uh, John Williams, I think the guy's name is, has a, has a website called Shadow Stats. And he calculates, among other things, he calculates the inflation rate based upon uh, this, uh, an older version, an older model, essentially. So the way inflation was calculated in 1982, if we use that same methodology to calculate inflation today, inflation would not be 7.5%. It would be double that. It would be 15%. A much more reasonable and accurate reflection of reality. Yeah, it is. I figured for some time it, it's got to be running at least 15% just when for the things that you look around. But of course, one meme that the US government likes to, uh, they believe in is, is uh, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. So don't give the people anything to fear and there's nothing to worry about. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, but, but the thing is about like, I, I wonder if people realize how deeply destructive if you know, was we haven't in my lifetime. Basically, I've never we've never really had substantial inflation, not like this. Um, I mean, like, and and so I wonder if people really realize how fundamentally destructive this is to capital worldwide. I mean, people's uh, standard of living were just going to be totally destroyed uh, if this continues at this rate, or even accelerates from here. Like, how how can you how do we put that in perspective for people to understand the impact of that? 
it's utterly disastrous because it makes it makes it foolish to save money because in every country in the world when you save in order to get ahead you're saving the national currency i mean smart people don't do that now people that are knowledgeable about economics and finance don't do that anymore but the average guy by which i mean 95% of people i don't care if you're in, in zambia or Burma or the United States, you save with the local currency. And when the local currency is inflated away, everything that you've worked and saved for is destroyed. I mean, it's it, you may not you may not realize it. It's only very subtle when inflation is running at one or two or three percent. But now that we're getting up into the 15% level, and there's nothing that you can invest in that can keep you ahead of inflation with any kind of certainty or safety, that is to say. Even if you buy a junk bond today, you can't get more than 10%, then you have a real risk of default and inflation is still running 15%. So this is going to destroy the middle class who are the people that actually do produce more than they consume and save the difference. So this is, this is going to be devastating. And they're going to start realizing this. Forget about a major stock market collapse. Forget about an outright bond market collapse. I'm just talking about subtle things going on as they are. Uh, it's going to result in a, a catastrophe. It's absolutely guaranteed. And you know, as I was thinking about this, I like to look for historical analogies. And um, actually, the middle class today equate to the peasants of times past. Hmm. Times past, 95% of people were peasants. They just kind of lived from hand to mouth and, you know, grew some wheat and so forth. And uh, throughout history, uh, there have been we don't know how many peasant revolts there have actually been throughout history where the average guy who throughout most of history was a peasant just had enough and tried to overthrow the existing order, probably thousands. Uh, we have records of hundreds of them, but oddly enough, they're rarely good records because throughout past history, the people that have written the history have been the upper classes because they knew how to write. They've been the, uh, the clerics and the rulers. And they don't want to memorialize the disaster for them of a peasant revolt. <laughs> so these things are not well recorded throughout history. Um, but we do have indications of it. And uh, things which have been recorded, they, they had lots of peasant revolts in the early days of China. Uh, but the things that interest us most are the ones that have occurred in, in the days of Western civilization. And um, the most famous peasant revolt in all of history, or at least Western history, uh, was the um, English peasant revolt. Uh, some call it the Watt Tyler revolt of 1381. And actually, since this is the best recorded, there's more known about this one. This is the one I looked into most. And I think it was on June 1st, 
uh, Richard II had just, uh, who, who was a boy king uh, or his government, had uh, just imposed a poll tax on the British people. And a poll tax is one where everybody plays a, pays a flat tax. All adults pay you know, one shilling or whatever, no matter how rich or poor or what you do or whatever, it's just flat tax. And the people didn't like that because it was a new tax in addition to everything else they were paying in the way of taxes. So this started uh, outside of London where the King's men, you know, very boldly came into this one town, I forget the name of the town, and, uh, you know, required the coin, whatever that coin was, I forget, from everybody uh, for the new tax. And what really struck, what really fired the people up apparently is they decided, since it was only adults that had to pay the tax, they decided to examine the private parts of girls of a certain age to see if they were virgins or not. And if you were not a virgin, well, you were an adult and you had to pay the tax, otherwise mm. you could skate. So the people thought this was just going just a bit too, too far. far. And, uh, you know, beat them soundly and drove them away and told them not to come back. So, of course, when they went back to headquarters, they told, you know, the next official up the line and he sent back twice as many and this time armed soldiers. And this time, you know, the peasants were ready and they beat the hell out of the soldiers and beheaded several of them, which was, you know, pretty bold yeah. in those days. And then word of the revolt spread and spread and spread. And uh, over the next two weeks, there were several armies from all around, spread all over England. And they uh, attacked London in their, their thousands. They burned down palaces. Uh, they beheaded lots of people in the uh, tax collecting um, business and people that were royalty support people that people royalty that and and nobles that had particularly obnoxious reputations they beheaded them mm. so it was actually quite wonderful and they came up with a um, how many was it demands that they had about a half a dozen demands which were very reasonable a we don't want to be serfs anymore because if you were a serf uh wasn't actually as bad as being a slave because you could have property and so forth. But, you know, the, the, the uh, local noble had prima noctis rights on your bride if you got married. There were all kinds of things like that uh, to do with being a serf. So they wanted that abolished. They wanted taxes regularized. They wanted the judicial system to be made for all very reasonable things. And, um, you know, they came this close, this close, where Watt Tyler, who um, was a Tyler, most of these English names we were called Baker or, or uh, uh, Smith or yep. Tyler, you know, that's what you did for a living. So you were, you know, Watt Tyler from Essexshire or whatever the hell it was. Uh, that's, that's why those names are fairly common. Anyway, what happened was this, is that uh, uh, Watt Tyler, who 
had leadership capabilities, there were a couple hundred of these peasants that got, um, at this time, uh, this is during the Hundred Years' War, so most of the British military were fighting in France at that time. Also, it wasn't so long after the, uh, the Black Death. The Black Death uh, came, came out of nowhere and destroyed, uh, what, 30, 40%, some places 50% of the population in like uh, the 1330s. And this had a huge economic effect uh, where uh, wage prices went up because you wanted stuff done. There were a lot less people to do it and so forth. Anyway, uh, that was the big upset at the time in addition to everything else. So anyway, Watt Tyler uh, confronts Richard II. Uh, both of them have, a, have armed men in back of them. And, um, you know, it looked like the king was going to uh, cave in and sign the papers and all this type of thing. And uh, one of the nobles uh, somehow attacked Watt. This is all written down. I'm not telling this nearly as well since I'm not an expert in medieval English history. But this is what happened. Watt was attacked. He was uh, badly wounded. And that set off a melee. And the, uh, you know, the armed professionals beat the armed peasants. Which at that time was actually a fair ma uh, match between an armed peasant and a, uh, and a soldier with a sword because a peasant would have a, a flail and would have you know, a lot of things that would be very useful in hand-to-hand in -hand combat. Anyway, uh, the king won there and then the nobles got organized and the revolt was overthrown. Anyway, there's a lot, of, a lot that would turned out to be written on the English Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Mm. Really interesting reading, okay? Mm. So I think most people are not actually very aware of it. So I, I'm just mentioning that to yeah. encourage people to look into it. There, there were peasant revolts before and lots more after, but that's the most famous one. And what, you, what we're seeing right now with the Canadian truckers, you, you mentioned to me beforehand that it is. It has the same feel of a peasants' revolt. It it does, because um, they're the same people. They're the people in the middle and and perhaps you could say not lower classes. The lower classes don't have any money and don't work. The truckers are all middle class guys. Yeah. You know, some middle middle class, some lower middle class, some upper middle class. Frankly, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, that the. Canadian truckers revolt and the uh, thing that set them off were these ridiculous COVID regulations, which right. I don't think are really gonna go away. They'll be retracted, they'll be retrenched, but then we have COVID point 2.0 and 3.0, they'll come back and so forth. And one thing that occurred to me from the uh, various peasant revolts throughout history, which we know about hundreds, but there are undoubtedly many thousands, is that almost always, <clears throat> almost always, the uh, powers that be uh, win. Uh, the history we have shows that they're almost always, almost always put down. And this one will be too. Now, why might that be? Because they didn't actually overturn the power structure. Mm. They didn't replace. 
the king was something better. And, you know, it's like a cancer. It grows back unless you cut it out entirely. And, and that kind of leads me to actually in European history, the second most famous peasant revolt, which um, was actually bigger in terms of deaths, but uh, there's a lot less writing about it. There's not much writing about any of these peasants, revolts for the reasons I just said. And that, uh, it's terrible when you try to do this when you have a, a dog trying to get your attention. Um, and this was the, uh, the German Peasant War uh, of 1525. And uh, that was an interesting time because this is roughly, well, it's exactly contemporaneous actually with the uh, Protestant revolution and uh, Luther posting his theses and all this type of thing. And, and the cause of this war was pretty much pretty much the same kind of deal as happened in England. It was taxes and unfairness and so forth. And um, you know, these peasants, uh, and, and of course this one spread, was helped by the printing press because the uh, peasants, uh, most of them didn't know how to read, but there's always somebody in the group that knew how to read, that was on their side. They printed up thousands and thousands and thousands of um, flyers with their 12 demands, which were pretty much the same as the English peasants had uh, 150 years before. Um, abolish serfdom, cut taxes, uh, no more arbitrary justice, uh, uh, you know, the unoccupied land doesn't belong to the king or the noble, so we get to fish and hunt on it and get firewood from it, this type of thing. It's basic simple stuff. So uh, here there were pitched battles between the peasants and uh, the soldiers, and the, um, the peasants basically lost them all because they didn't have they didn't have a professional military with strategies. Uh, their weapons weren't as good. They didn't have as many firearms and so forth. And it turned out that uh, something like 100,000 peasants were slaughtered by, um, by the powers that be. And then it went away. But then there were other peasant revolts after that. Anyway, so this is kind of, this truckers thing is, um, like a, a milder version of past peasant revolts, like the Whiskey Rebellion that took place right. after the Constitution was put, in, you know, after George Washington was president. Alexander Hamilton, who was a horrible person, you figured that they'd have to make a Broadway show about the worst of the founding fathers, uh, you know, convinced him to, um, to go into Pennsylvania and with the army and put down the revolt because the peasants there didn't want to pay taxes on whiskey, which is the only thing they could do with their corn. There they were in the middle of nowhere growing stuff. So what did you do if you had a corn crop? You uh, couldn't eat it all. You really couldn't ship it all effectively with the roads and that. So you made it into whiskey, but you didn't want to have it. It was just, it's one thing after another. Um, but maybe this is the start of another more successful whiskey rebellion. I hope so. Hmm. Or but, you know, revolt, or Watt Toller's revolt. It's the same thing. It's the uh, middle classes that are being ground between the millstones of 
taxes and inflation, as Lenin said, and maybe they've just had enough. Anyway, that was kind of a long soliloquy on my part, but. No, it's really interesting. I didn't know about either one of those, frankly, and I'm going to do some reading on them. I, I uh, you know, I, I just wonder, like, how does that, because this does seem to be escalating, you know, the success of the, and maybe this was just like with the, the English uh, peasant revolt, you know, because it was successful, its initial pushback was successful, then it does gain momentum, you know, and it gets and more people are encouraged to do it. So we see now in, in Canada, you've got people blocking, you know, the major bridge between Ontario and, uh, and Michigan, which 25% uh, of the of the trade between the two countries happens on that single bridge, and they have that totally blocked off. And, um, you know, so it is does seem to be uh, spreading in that way, at least and and I guess and success breeds more of this, I think. Um, but I just wonder, you know, like, at what point and how, if you have any ideas, they start to push back against it? Well, you know, just as this happened in these past revolts, things got better because it put the fear of God into the ruling classes, even if the revolts were put down, you know, it kind of brought them up short and they mellowed things out. But uh, same thing will happen. Same thing will happen here unless they, you know, you've got to pull out these agencies and laws and regulations and bureaucracies. You've got to pull them out by the root and abolish them. Otherwise, they just grow back after, you know, being brought up short for a little while by the, by the revolt. So I'm pessimistic. I mean, sure, they'll get rid of Trudeau. I mean, that, that seems... A foregone conclusion and he'll be replaced by somebody more reasonable but it's not going to change anything basically the deep is going to be there yeah so they'll so they'll just grow back they'll just they'll yeah. come back so do you think that do you think the way things are moving between the u.s or between the, the truckers right now with this do you think that the the government will just accede to their demands and just kind of just let the pressure off do you expect that to happen? Because there's there's talk about some escalation, you know, whether they were anticipating mass arrests, uh, and it's just it's rumors, really, more than anything else. But there's certainly been some talk of that. Well, we've I guess we spoke of this before, and kind of the word on the street that I pick up is that the uh, the RCMP were basically the same class background, middle class, as the truckers you know, understand their beef. And even though they're state employees, they don't really want to, they don't want to stick their noses in this. And the Canadian military, same thing. Say, look, we don't want to get involved in this. This isn't, uh, this isn't our deal. But uh, it's the local Ottawa police that are apparently pushing back the most on this. So uh, yeah. I guess if you're, you know, a government employee like cops are, you don't want to lose your job. I mean, yeah. you want a job. It's a pretty good job. So. Well, I don't know if you know this, but the uh, the Ottawa police are not required to be vaccinated. They have, they, oh, they have, they have an exception. That's really that's that's really funny. Yeah, it's, and I'm sure the the truckers are aware of that fact. Oh, they're well aware of that. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Well, it's an explosive situation uh, in lots of ways, and it'll get more explosive as the economy deteriorates and inflation gets higher, which I'm 
convinced it will much higher uh, in the months to come. And let's admit it, the time for uh, fighting in the streets isn't the dead of winter when it's inconvenient, it's the summer. Yeah. That's when it happens. So, uh, you know, I, on the other hand, you know, this COVID hysteria is gonna burn itself out just because it was stupid from the very start, but they'll come up with a point, 2.0 probably. Yeah. It's, un, it's unpredictable. And, you know, um, we were talking a couple of years ago, could it have been that long? Uh, I was certainly writing a lot of stuff about the um, possibility and the logic of secession. Uh, and Canada would be easier to have secession from the federal system than the US mm. uh, for a lot of reasons, but it'll happen in the US too. I really think the US uh, not only should break up, but it likely will break up at some point. Don't know mm. if it's imminent or not, but, uh, but you know, they've, they've created, they've gone out of their way to actually create race hatred in the US, which is yeah. pretty well vanished in my opinion. I mean, mm -hmm. it really had among just the average guy didn't give a damn about race. Sure, there's, there's always a genetic thing in the back of your brain that says, oh, different from me, maybe I should watch out. But uh, other than that, you know, reptilian brain telling you that, race wasn't a problem. Now it's become a problem in the US. Yep, it's being stoked big time, no doubt about it. And no doubt about it. division on all fronts, it seems like. But I yep. wonder like, when, when a secession, that kind of thing happens, it, does, it ha does it happen through confrontation or does it happen more like the Soviet Union where essentially the ability to hold it together dissolves and so it just collapses under its own weight versus, versus as I said, you know, actual armed conflict or, or forcing the issue as was you know, done in the Civil War? Yeah, that's, that's gonna take some real research. How do these things happen uh, actually? And it's a question of organization because, uh, you know, the, uh, the government has all the organization and the infrastructure and the weapons. It's really tough to uh, try to uh, fight the established powers. It, it really is. And I know Paul Rosenberg, among others, have talked about the best way to do it is with a parallel society where you basically ignore them. But uh, who was it that said, uh, uh, you may ignore war, but war won't ignore you? Or, or what's <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know, know, but it makes sense. Yeah, it does. I don't know. It's, uh, I, I want to say again, if this decade coming up isn't one of the most unpleasant and inconvenient, you know, in living memory, I'd say the most in living memory, I'll be really surprised. Yeah, definitely the stage is being set for all kinds of uh, conflict, it seems, you know, like just lots of confrontation. You know, people are not, people are not uh, negotiating, you know, it, it, people are, people, like positions are hardening on every side, whether it's, you know, the Russia and Ukraine issue or, uh, or, you know, the trucker situation, it seems like everyone is getting digging in um, and into their position and not really willing to give up anything on it. Yeah, and the same thing in many ways with uh, China and 
Taiwan, which the US will certainly get involved in. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Everybody's heard about the Nord Stream pipeline, uh, Russian gas to Germany. But the only thing we really hear about is that the US government wants to do this or that about it. Wait a minute. The US government doesn't own the pipeline. It's not financing it. It's not on our territory. It's between two other countries. Well, why is the US talking about this? Like, like we own and control the damn thing. Uh, I'll have to look into that and find out more. Do you, do you know the answer to that? No, I, I, I do know that Biden Biden said something like that at a press conference. He said, hey, if they attack, if they if they attack Ukraine, you know, this this pipeline is done. Like it will it's it's we're gonna turn it off. And they said, well, how can you turn it off? Because it's Germany. And he goes, trust me, we could turn it off. That's what he said. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure they, yeah, that, that, that's why God made cruise missiles. Yeah, we, we could kill like that. But uh, I mean, you know, uh, freezing a bunch of uh, our German allies uh, probably is not the best strategic decision, you think? I know. It's, it's, it's a bizarre world. And I, I'm sure that the average American, having heard so much about the Nord Stream pipeline uh, doesn't actually realize this, these simple facts that I, I think we're being accurate and putting forward. And, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps some reader who's very familiar with it can, can tell us if we're missing anything. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll do some research on peasant revolts, Doug. That's, uh, that's uh, thanks for the history lesson. I think we'll leave it there for today. And tomorrow I'll, I'll uh, solicit some questions and we'll do a viewer Q&A tomorrow. Super. Thanks, man.